There are more than 250,000 unsolved murders across the United States. This is a national crisis, and there are thousands and thousands of families who have no answers about who killed their loved ones. Using advances in technology, crowdsourcing, and good old-fashioned boots-on-the-ground investigative work, follow American Military University's Cold Case Investigative Team as we work to break the case for one of those families. This podcast contains details and descriptions of actual homicide victims and their injuries, including sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. Previously on Break the Case. We had no help, no support. So we decided to do our own investigation. Well, the truth of the matter is, Bob and Joyce Lemons did the footwork. And there have been some people over time that have tried to take a lot of credit for what they did, but they did the legwork. We had gone up against the Texas Department of Public Safety. We had gone up against the DA's office. We had gone up against law enforcement officers all over the, the nation. After I hung up, shortly after that, the phone rang. And I picked up the phone at my home. And uh, Bob and I's discussion was playing back in my ear. And uh, I was a kid who got scared. The week of August 24th, George and I separately made the drive to Lubbock, Texas. We thought it was really important for us to be in town on the anniversary of Debbie's murder, not only to commemorate her murder, but also to see firsthand what the scene at Debbie's residence would have looked like on the night of her murder. We had a long list of people we wanted to connect with during our trip. First on our list was a meeting with Liz Flatt and her sister, Paula Chase. Paula is Liz's half-sister and Debbie's stepsister. Liz is 10 years younger than Debbie, but grew up with her during the first eight years of her life before Debbie was killed. Paula is the same age as Debbie, and although they did not live with her full-time, they spent many holidays and special occasions together with a blended family. Liz, Paula, George, and I had our work cut out for us that week. Liz and Paula had a meeting scheduled with the Lubbock PD first thing on Tuesday morning. While they were at the police department, George and I went to the Avalanche Journal newspaper. This is the same newspaper Philip Hamilton worked at in the 80s. He spent some time speaking with me on our last episode. The AJ, as it's known by local residents, had covered Debbie's case extensively in the months after her murder, and we thought they'd be really interested in obtaining an update on our work on her case. Unfortunately, not all efforts go as planned. Due to COVID restrictions, the newspaper building was locked up tight. We could tell employees were inside, but despite this, no one answered our knocks at the door or phone calls. Nobody's answering. Nothing. Nothing. Uh, it is pretty empty in there. Yeah, I mean, how do you have a newspaper and nobody can get in the right. office? Okay. Well, they're missing out on a good story. They are. Maybe they'll watch the news clip tomorrow night and then call me back. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know what? Maybe they will. Because sometimes that works. Yeah. I mean, they see it, they see it on television. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you would think they'd have the newsroom phone number up here. Well, yeah. <laughs> At a minimum. It's disappointing. Well, what do you do? Well. Well. You want to go to the house? Yeah. Just go and. Let's go over there. Just go do it. Yeah. Let's go take the picture. We'll just walk in there. Yeah, get some beef in the way. We can just walk right up, knock on the door, and... Yep. Okay. Well, we tried. 
With some time to spare, while Liz and Paula were at their first meeting with Lubbock PD, George and I drove over to the residence where Debbie had been killed. Because it was August 24th, the day Debbie had been murdered, we'd hoped to meet the current occupant of the home and get permission to return that evening to view the location at night. Then the destination is on your left. Yeah, we're here. the back alleyway today too mm-hmm. yeah because i want to see where the gate and the fence is yeah the destination is on your left arrived oh, someone's here yes perfect i mean i guess the car could be here and no one's home <laughs> we struck out at the house as well, although we were able to see the backyard from the perimeter. Despite not being able to meet the occupant of the home, we planned to come back that night around 9 p.m. so we could be at the murder scene around the same time on the same day Debbie had been murdered 46 years ago. Once Liz and Paula's meeting with police was finished, we met up with them for our next big initiative. Getting Debbie's case back in the public spotlight was a major priority for us in order to drum up new leads and increase public awareness of our investigation. Despite the newspaper not expressing any interest in Debbie's story, one of the local TV stations had great interest. A reporter by the name of Blair Sable from the news channel KCBD was very intrigued with our renewed investigation into Debbie's case. She scheduled an interview with all of us on the afternoon of August 24th, the anniversary of Debbie's murder. A segment aired that night on the evening news. Murder case gone cold for nearly 50 years has piqued the interest of a pair of investigators determined to finally solve it. KCBD News Channel 11's Blair Sable joins us to explain why they think there's a good chance to do that despite the time gone by. Blair? Well, Karen and Abner, as you may already know, cold cases are notoriously difficult to solve. Even though it's been decades, this new team believes that they can crack this case open. A person who has been murdered deserves justice, no matter if it's been one day or if it's been 100 years. We believe that this case is solvable. The cold case investigative team, a partnership between investigative journalist George Jared and criminal justice professor Jennifer Bucholtz, volunteered to take this one on, giving newfound strength and comfort for Williamson's family. And they're entirely confident this time that they can find that one key mystery detail that finally closes the case. I do not believe anybody who murdered somebody 46 years ago has not told someone. So one of our goals is to find that someone who knows something about this case. I'm not going to give up. She deserves it. We deserve it. And a lot of innocent people that have been considered a possibility of being the one that killed her deserves it. We're also told that the team, along with the family, has met with police this week and the department has promised to take another look at the evidence. Karen and Abner. While we were in town that week, Liz, Paula, and I met another member of the Lubbock Police Department, Sergeant Anderson, who's the supervisor over the Homicide Division. Following our meeting with him, I asked Paula for her thoughts on how she was feeling. Liz joined us partway through our conversation. I'd like to hear both of your thoughts on how things went this week. I am encouraged, but I've left here before that way. What's different this week from 
the last few times. Meeting with um, Anderson, everything about him invited us, told us there was no time limit on meeting with him. Um, Great eye contact, wanting to know stuff, asking Liz again, no, just tell me, you know, because it's just so hopeful. Mm -hmm. It really is. And what he, since he's the boss of the other one we met yesterday, he's supposed to stay on top of that. This morning, he was just great. Yeah. Sitting here today, after after a couple of meetings, is this the most serious you think they've taken this in your experience of trying to fight this? Well, I mean, sometimes when we went, they acted like they were real serious, and we would just buy into the whole thing and later find out. This meeting, I left so positive. You know, if they can't solve it, they're going to look. They're good because really, basically, the police department hasn't done a whole lot. So, right. My impression was that he is willing to, within reason, exhaust all resources at this point to at least say, we did this and this and this. We're out of things to do, and we don't, we're not at the point where we have enough evidence. To arrest somebody. That's, I mean, he made it clear. It's a possible. A possible. Yes, it's definitely But he made, my feeling, and, you know, I want to hear yours too, because you just walked in on this, but was that he is at least willing to chase down leads, accept information from us. Yes. Follow up on it and see where those yep. leads That was the up. most open, yeah, I've ever seen anybody with this stuff. And again, we were taken in by a lot, but... Even if he's doing that to us, he's dang good. <laughs> yeah, yeah I think he has good intentions. Yeah, we just have to see. We'll see where, where it really tight where it goes from here. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, so, like, right now, the expectation from you guys is that a few months, six months from now, I mean, we, we do, you do have to give him a little bit of time, obviously. Yes, but I once, will a little bit. I will not. Yeah, I've made it clear I'm not going to give him a lot of time. Right. Like we're talking some months, you know, to, to re-interview witnesses that have not been re-interviewed since 1975. We're talking about suspects and mm-hmm. witnesses and people who gave statements. So you're expecting those people to be re-interviewed, which is completely fair. You're expecting the DNA or whatever forensic testing they can do. So as Paula, while you were outside, what's your overall feeling after these two meetings with the PD this week? I have some encouragement that they uh, are actually going to probably try to do things. I have encouragement that they're probably going to, or most likely will, make some movement on evidence as well as someone learning the case file. Right. Just the fact of re-interviewing people, period, if they're Mm -hmm. a suspect or not. Mm -hmm. um, You know, maybe they didn't want to say something then, but they're willing to say it now. Um, or maybe they didn't think something was important then, but maybe it is now. But no one's ever asked them again. Um, these people have not been re-interviewed since the initial interview, Correct. which is a few days to two weeks after the murder in 75. Right. I feel that there's a few that they will initiate to re- re-interview. And on a positive note, most of the key people that they should be looking at, for the most part, are still alive. Are in Lubbock, too. And they're in the Lubbock area. 
I, but I have to say this real quick. Mm-hmm. We were also, the first time we met with one of them in 17, we believed we that, walked away too. With, no, no. I mean, this <laughs> is the perfect scenario oh, of yeah. 2017. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've been very honest this entire time about anything and everything, but I'm being very honest. I'm done waiting. I'm done waiting. Yeah. So giving them a little time to get caught up, that's their problem, not mine. Mm-hmm. Right. I've given them the time. It's been since 2017, March of 17, since I first contacted them. They've had the time. It's not my problem yep. that they have that turnover. turnover. So it's so not they, my problem yeah. that they have other cases. So that is it. their problem. They got to figure out. And it's not my problem that her case is 46 years old. It is my problem that they are not putting her case first, and my patience is limited. We will expect that that the public PD will have reached out to these people and re-interviewed them because that's what you would do in any investigation. If there were very little forensics, if there's no forensics, or if there's a ton of forensics, you still interview people. Mm. Well, that's the biggest thing to me. It seems like from the beginning... If they found DNA, they could solve it. And it's like, what happened to talking with people? What happened to asking questions? And that's the work. only way. Right. But that was where... <laughs> it's hard work. That's it really the truth. Is. It's hard work. They never really interviewed any of them. So, yes, they should be doing that again. That's and that's why we thought, all right, yeah. <laughs> I mean, they say it's... Well, we say it's hard work. Uh, Jennifer and I have interviewed just about everybody in the case so far. Yeah. It's still who, hard. You have to track them down. And, yeah. And they have resources. Obviously, tons of resources we don't have. They can find someone's cell phone number. Well, no they're problem. being paid How to do many, it, too. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. I could take that time, effort, and energy working on her case or helping the police or, or, what, or having a life while they do their job. Right. Right. You know? But my overall, I'm trying to stay positive. Yeah. Yeah. And honestly, there is a conclusion here that may not be satisfying, but if they've exhausted every avenue, if they've tested everything, if they had, if when we go back and talk to the witnesses and they've interviewed all of them again, at that point, I, you understand. I do understand that there is the possibility. Because I've, my first thing I've, I've asked all along is, I truly don't feel that her case has ever been properly and fully worked. Right. That's what I'm asking for right there. Yeah. Wherever that leads to that whatever answer, that's where it leads. But I can't give up and I can't stop until I know everything possible to solve her murder has been exhausted. Right. If that happens and everything's exhausted and we can't identify the murder, then at least I know that. Uh, At least I know I've done everything I can do, justice for her. Absolutely. And it is a possibility. I don't. I don't want that to be the answer. No, of course. But I do uh, truly understand that is a possibility. After our conversation with Liz and Paula, we headed out to a florist to buy flowers, and then headed to the cemetery to visit Debbie. When we got there, Liz and Paula polished her headstone and trimmed the grass around it. Prayers were said and promises were made to Debbie that this time around, none of us were stopping until we found answers for her. After a much-needed dinner and a little downtime, we made our way back to Debbie's house to see for ourselves what it was like on the night of the murder. We arrived around 9 p.m. and stayed for a couple hours. 
still look how dark that is. You can't see a thing. Yeah, and think about all the um, unnatural light that yeah. exists now, just That's like exactly the air. So, yeah, she died right there. On this night. Yeah, right now. Right about In now. And this road, Liz, wasn't nearly as busy, right? No, and it wasn't four-lane either. I think it was just two-lane. It was a two-lane. None of these light street lights were here except no. for one. I mean, even if you and know the that was yard, parked there as well. And I know the so. kitchen light was on, but yeah, that's risky. I mean, that is just so. And you, you could you could run into something, trip over something, kick something like. But if you're motivated enough to stab, out with it dark like that, I'm telling you. If you're motivated enough to stab someone though to death, you the darkness wouldn't stop you. And they say that in order to stab someone, you have to it has to be personal. Yeah. Right? Usually, yeah. Yeah. Something. And you don't. And those lights down there, you don't think, like it down 82nd. Do you think those street lights were down there? Those ones. I don't think so. Mm -hmm. It is so, so dark. This is darker than I thought it was going to be. The other thing is, like, as the attack's going on here, her attacker can't see much either. No. No, that's exactly right. So that could also be part of distribution of, of the, the different wounds because right. they're just, like, aimlessly stabbing. Yeah. I mean, my eyes are starting to adjust some, but... Yeah. I guess actually, if you had hidden out here for a while and your eyes could adjust, you you know you would have an advantage over her. Well, I, but I figure her car was the left side was about where this like I don't know if that's an oil stain, or, but based on those photos, it looked like maybe her left side tires were near yeah the left side of that stain. It's a pretty narrow area. Well, I'm gonna walk down the alley because that's public. Yeah, that's public. So I can go there. There's a gas station there. You yeah. How you doing? The man standing there ended up being the tenant of the home. He'd initially thought maybe we were prowlers, as he'd recently had equipment stolen from his property. We assured him that we were there to solve a crime, not commit one. He was extremely gracious and understanding and allowed us as much time as we wanted on the property and inside the home. This was where yeah. she was laying and her mm -hmm. arm was a pair right here. She had been When we entered the home, it appeared the kitchen was configured exactly the same as it had been in 1975 when Debbie and Doug lived there. We spent some time assessing the lighting, turning the kitchen light on and all the other lights in the home off. The kitchen light was reportedly the only light on when police arrived, although it's possible the utility light inside the back door was also lit. We then walked outside so we could evaluate the lighting situation as Debbie had experienced it when she left the house the night of her murder. We want to do a small recreation of the lighting. So when this occurred, only the kitchen, the light over the kitchen sink was on. Mm -hmm. No carport light and no hallway light. And those kitchen curtains were drawn, as far as I could tell from the photos. So, right. And you saw you can't see out anyways. Right. Like, so he easily could have just snuck up on that step. Well, normally, she, if she left the house, she would always turn it on. Yeah. Just in case it was dark when she come home. Yeah. Because that was, I mean, that was her thing. I'll tell you what the killer probably did. While he was waiting for her to come out, he probably crouched down. She's probably reaching back to grab that door to shut it. 
she this door comes open mm -hmm. she comes out it creates that cocoon that we were talking about where she yeah. has to try to get around we discussed whether debbie's killer had maybe been inside the home with her and followed her out the door as she exited if it was me, I would have pushed her as she was going out that door. Yeah. Knowing she's going to lose her balance. And but she still had to come off that small little step and go around. Well, no, if, if you get pushed, she would have gone past the door and she would be over in the other part of that, um, like, like, area. So the and pushed? No, no, like she's like she like you're like you're walking away from me and I just come behind you and I'm running at you and I just push you. So she's in the screen door like opening the screen door uh -huh. and she's pulling the door shut, whichever way it is, which uh -huh. she did not pull it shut. Correct. It was open and unlocked. If they're right there, she'd have to have gone down off that step because it's so small to get around the door. Yeah. But if there's a, if there's a killer in that corner and she's coming out that door, that's the way she's coming. She has to. She doesn't have a choice. She can't go through the door. She can't run that way because she's running into the dark. And that screen door did not open like this all the way. Right. The you, screen door, and you can see that in the pictures. You're a human. It had a chain. Her Okay, this would be your instinct. Okay. So it would have opened maximum probably like this much. Yeah. You got to think about human instinct, though. That's if, right. You were telling me that. If you're, if you're in a house and there's a killer in your house, what's your first thing you're trying to do? You're trying to get out of the house. So her instinct is not going to be go back in the house where he can trap her. Her instinct is going to be come out this carport where she there's perceived freedom out here. Yeah, because when she goes I'm into flight, sorry. she's coming around that door and she's headed for her car or for this road where there's people. You got to get her she was, vulnerable, which is how she's going down that first think, step. Did you have to use a key to lock that door? They had a doorknob thing? It was a turn knob on the back. I remember that. Yeah, but wouldn't that be a deadbolt? No, it was a push. That's it? Okay. I'm pretty sure it was a push. Well, they could have had both because a turn one would, the way you're describing it, would one, be a dead one. One knob, okay. the old fashioned gold knob. Mm -hmm. And there's the other possibility too that she had the door all but shut. The killer attacks her. They end up over here because I'm going to tell you, if in my mind, if, if she was being chased out and the killer came up behind her, the attack would have happened over in that corner. Mm -hmm. But you have to account for, yeah. like you said, the book and keys being yeah. by the step. And don't forget, actually, she was attacked towards the rear of the car. So if she's walking towards the car with no threat, she should have been attacked before she got to the driver's side. But the blood is to the rear, which tells me she's, she's running. running for the street. She's running for her life at and, that point. And the person who's coming after her neither pushes her or jumps. I think he jumped on her back. So she was running for her life and he caught her. And that would immediately take her down. I mean, she was she was pretty tall for a girl, but she wasn't very like heavy or anything. She was, you know, for a, for a, a decent, an average sized guy, he could take her down like that, especially if she's already had a wound or two and he's stabbing her. Yeah, and all the wounds were through her clothes. Yeah. I'll look at the alley one more time. You would not, if they had their lights off and they were parked there, you would not see that. But you know what, that hurt, whoever it was had to be taken. They were in a rage. They yeah, had, they, they were, were in such a rage because just think that car sitting there, they're sitting in this yard waiting on her. And they're sitting there thinking it through. Like they can change yeah. their mind. Yeah. And say, nah, this is a bad yeah. idea. And they're doubling down with everything. But decision. they're, yeah. So was, was this about Doug? 
or have we been looking at it all wrong of being about Debbie? We, we entertain the possibility. Cannot dismiss that it could have been about Doug. Right? Yeah. We cannot right now. And if one gets pissed off, it's, and you have, uh, I don't want to say a partner in crime necessarily, but a very close friend who's pissed off with you. Yeah. I s- it's easier to, I think, well. Well, I don't think that there's any element of this case that was very well concealed. Right. I just don't understand why nobody heard her. There had to be one person outside. Well, One child outside. The thing of it is, if her lungs were punctured early on... But that, I mean, that initial attack. scream, maybe. Unless... Now, I will say, I've been so scared I couldn't get nothing out. She was running for her life. One, and had no voice. Yeah, she... You know? Yep. She was running you just, for her life. Yeah. And it's yeah. 9.30 at night. It's a school night. Kids are in bed. It's a church even, night. Even too. all the neighbors yeah. that they interviewed, most of them were in bed. If someone's screaming continuously, yeah, that's super alarming. But if someone just lets out one scream, I mean, that could almost be anything. Well, I can see that they didn't react to it. Mm -hmm. But the neighbors they interviewed said they didn't hear anything. After spending a couple hours at the house, we felt we had a good sense of the crime scene. Well, have we done everything we need to do and leave this guy alone? I think so, yeah. Yeah. This was like a million percent more than I expected, so. Well, that's the way the magic happens. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We're going to leave. Thank you so very much. Thank you, sir. We yeah. very much appreciate Thank it. Thank you. It's like 11.30 p.m. on Tuesday, August 24th. We just got back to the hotel from being at Debbie's residence to check out the crime scene at night. I am exhausted, but my brain won't stop spinning. We did so much today, and I know Liz and Paula are emotionally drained. I'm drained, so I know that they are even more so. We went all over town today. The newspaper, which was a bust, but at least we caught the interest of the TV channel and did a great interview with them. Liz and Paula met with the detective assigned to Debbie's case. I was pretty frustrated to learn that he didn't really even know many of the facts of the case, despite him having been assigned to it for over a year. After the news station this afternoon, we went over to the cemetery to visit Debbie, and of course that always brings a new flood of emotions and is a dose of reality when you see the last resting spot of a victim. It's also Texas in August, and it felt like it was a million degrees out there. And then tonight, around 9, we went back over to the house where Debbie was killed, and I was so relieved because the homeowner did not slam the door in our face and actually was incredibly friendly and invited us onto the property and into the house. So I think we learned so much from being there at the time Debbie was killed, but there's so much to process on that. I'm going to wait until George and I have some time to talk it through. Okay, I'm going to sign off for the day and try and sleep. When a crime is committed, clues live within digital devices. That's digital forensics. Learn how to process and analyze that data by earning a Bachelor's of Science in Digital Forensics from American Military University. Classes are online with monthly program starts. Learn more about AMU's Digital Forensics degree by visiting amuonline.com forensics. 
When things calmed down later that week, George and I sat down to reflect on what we'd learned from being at the crime scene at night. Okay, George, so it has been a crazy week. We haven't had much time to sit down and just kind of discuss our thoughts, but one thing I really wanted to talk about is what are you thinking after visiting the crime scene at night the other night? What first comes to mind to you about that? Like, what really stuck out to you? What stuck out to me was how dark it was. Mm -hmm. Even, you know, years later, you know, with all the houses that were built all around there, the buildings, the highway expansion. I mean, it's definitely an urban area now, and it was a rural area back then. I could not believe how dark it was in that yard. I I know. Even with all that added light, all these years later, you could feel how ominous it was out there. I'll tell you another thing that really shocked me was how small a space. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're you're looking at a space that was really intimate, especially with a car parked right there. And you have an idea in your head that's a pretty length, like a long way to drag somebody. And then you, when you're actually out there and you see it, you're thinking to yourself, this, this actually isn't that far to drag someone. No. I mean, it wasn't. I feel like the time component, like the length of time it would have taken for the attack to initiate and to come to conclusion with all the aspects of what happened, including the removing or the, um, the pulling down of her her pants and the pulling up of her shirt, all of that stuff, turning her body, whatever else the killer did. I just don't think it would have taken very long out there. Yeah. Really quick attack. You would have to have intimate knowledge of that yard and that space. It would be really hard for me to believe that someone, a stranger, someone who is not familiar with that area would be able to sneak into that yard and commit a crime like that. Because let's be clear, if it was a stranger, you know, it's not like they tried to break into the house and then she ran out the back door when they were trying to break in. So that, that didn't happen. That's Mm -hmm. implausible. So if it's a stranger, they would have had to have waited and known that she was coming outside just happenstance. I mean, honestly, how would they know she was ever going to come outside? Exactly. So that makes no sense. So putting all that together, it's definitely somebody who had been to that house before. It's someone who's familiar with the yard. The space was small and it was really dark. And ironically enough, you know, we were out there long enough where the moon came up and it was a similar phase of the moon as when the murder happened. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's really eerie and ironic. So um, I guess that's my 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 first initial impressions of the crime scene. Yeah, the darkness, the level of darkness really stuck out to me because when we were standing in the street and the carport's not that far away from us, you couldn't see anything. I mean, you'd be able to see that there was a car parked in it. But besides that, you could not see into that backyard and know what you were going to get into if you walked back there. I mean, and... And here's the thing. The kitchen light was on just like it was back then. The light situation was almost identical coming from the house and from natural light from the moon and all this other stuff. You have all this artificial light that's now introduced and it still looked like that. Yeah. And the the moon didn't rise till later that night. I remember that, though, like at 930 or 10, it wasn't up yet. I remember it was much later when it finally came over the horizon. So I don't think the moon was a factor at all during the murder. Another thing about a stranger, like, 
there's no so Debbie's car is in the carport. That doesn't mean only one person is home. That there's a female in the house by herself. There, there's nothing that would tell a stranger that, and it would just be beyond any level of acceptable risk to go try to get into her home and hope that there's not a man in there or anybody else in there to fend him off. I mean, it just this stranger theory. Nothing points to a stranger at all. I mean, I think from my my vantage point. There's there is zero evidence that a stranger could have committed this. Plus, another thing that I noticed too, I don't know if you noticed this, just even like the um, like the windows into the house, you know, they're they're not at, at advantageous angles to look into the house. Like if you're uh, a stalker outside and you're trying to look into the house, mm-hmm. it would be really hard for someone just to happen upon the house and try to look through the windows to see who's in there, what's going on. That just doesn't seem very plausible to me either. No, and the ho- the front side of the house is set back pretty far from 82nd Street. So there's quite a bit of front yard you'd have to prowl through to get up to those windows that mu- that would provide you the most, I guess, possibility of seeing something in the house because a prowler is very doubtful in my mind that they would go into that backyard seeing how dark it is and try to look through any window on the back side of the house. Plus, when you're in the backyard, you're basically trapped. I mean, you can run out the carport like what Debbie may have done herself, but like you're kind of trapped back there. Whereas, I don't, I don't know. It just it doesn't make any sense. It's not a house that a, a stranger prowling around the neighborhood would pick to go try and break into or something. It's too risky. It's right on a main street. I, <laughs> I totally agree with you. Also, something that I thought of no was the kitchen window. Like, we know that it was a ruse, whoever did this, when they broke that kitchen window out. Mm-hmm. When you go into that kitchen, and you see how small that window is, and it's right above a sink, and you're just thinking to yourself, who in the world would even imagine that this was a plausible um, decoy for the for what was going to happen, for what happened? Yeah. You know what I mean? And just seeing it i mean you know it's true it's kind of one of those things in life you know something's true when you see it on paper but then to actually be there and see it with your own eyes it just elevates it in your mind yeah before we'd gotten there we already knew that kitchen window was pretty high off the ground but when you get there in person you're like there's no way i mean you would need a ladder to climb up through it and it's so small you obviously would cut yourself i mean it's like we've talked about before it's literally about the least likely window a burglar would try to go through to get into that house (laughs) so yeah that was a really really poor attempt i guess at staging i mean that seems like the most likely reason somebody or the killer broke that window but it was stupid and then the other thing is as we know like if if a killer is trying to stage a scene as something else then we know that that's not the motive so we we can pretty much rule out burglary as being the motive here yeah i totally agree uh, the taking of the purse, again, it's just just like the busting out of the window. It could mm-hmm. be just um, happenstance. It could just be some just trying to throw another another wrench in the works to try to throw the investigation off. And, you know, again, it's a purse. You know, people keep money in their purse. You know, if tra- tracking money is virtually impossible, you know, if they steal a wedding ring or something like that, there's always the possibility that they could trace that back to someone. Mm-hmm. That's stolen, but if there's cash in the purse, you know, you might A, assume there's cash in the purse and you're just going to take it, or B, you might know there's cash in the purse mm-hmm. and take it. So, um, yeah, I, that whole, that whole, I'll say this 
at a at a scene like that is always eerie knowing what happened there I in know. that space. It's very odd to stand in the space where somebody took their last breath. It's very sobering and um, it's a, it's just an odd feeling. It's hard to explain, but I felt it there for sure. Yeah, um, and I mean it was the the conditions were virtually the same. I mean yeah. it was a clear night. It was a warm warm day, mm-hmm. warm night. I mean everything was the same and of course you know, we stayed out there for a while. I mean, yeah, a couple uh, hours. With Liz, you know, just talking about all this. So, um, but yeah, it it was very sobering for sure. Yeah, something that I remember really struck me is when I'd been in the house for a while. Which one thing is standing at that kitchen window, you can't see anything into the backyard. It's too bright inside; you can't see a thing. So, that was something that struck me. But the bigger thing was that as I came back out the door. I was night blind because I'd been in this bright house and then all of a sudden I'm going into a very dark space. And I, I mean, I remember you stood against that wall next to the back door. And the only reason I saw you is because I knew you were there, but I couldn't see anything for, I don't know, at least a couple minutes after coming out. And so that would have been the exact same situation Debbie was in, was being night blind as she walked out that door, which obviously is a huge disadvantage to a victim. Absolutely. And again, back to, you know, the natural light situation out there has improved. I mean, as dark as it was out there, it was still easier to see out there when we were out there than it was for her. So that, yeah, that night blindness phenomenon, Mm -hmm. which happens to everybody would have only been amplified by that. Exactly. I'm still struggling with why the back door was standing open in this whole scenario. You know, I am too. I mean, the natural, there's only a couple of natural conclusions. One is she came through the door and didn't shut it. And so that's why it was open. Uh, Or the second one is, is that the killer may have actually gone into the house. Yeah. And when they came out, they just didn't want to, for whatever reason, didn't want to touch the door again. Didn't, you know, whatever, and just left it open, just fled Mm -hmm. and just left it open and took off. So, um, that is a very curious ass or curious detail in this case. Yeah. I mean, I don't tend to think she's got somebody in the house with her and she's fleeing because first of all, I don't think she'd grab her puzzle book. If she's under duress inside the home with this person, I don't think she'd take the time to worry about grabbing her puzzle book at the most. She'd grab her person keys and you know, get out of there. And I could kind of see the back door being left open in that situation. But again, her grabbing the puzzle book tells me she, it doesn't appear she was under duress as she's walking out that back door. So I don't think the person was in the house with her. And I don't think she's exiting with them behind her, expecting them to shut the door. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, another thing that would kind of uh, prove to your point too, was the fact that the TV was turned off. And she had been reportedly watching a movie. So she took time to turn off the TV, grab her purse, grab her puzzle book, grab all that stuff, and then walk out the door. So it it would seem like she wasn't under duress, like you said. Yeah. I don't think we can rule it out, though, that it is still possible that someone was in the house with her. But I think at this point, we would probably say it's less probable than... Uh, maybe yeah. an ambush type situation or somebody meeting her at the door. Yeah, that's what I was wondering is if 
did somebody come to the back door and, I don't know, confront her or talk her out of the house? But again, she's, she's grabbing that puzzle book. <laughs> like, that's a huge clue to me, I think. And this isn't a book that would fit in her purse. It, this book is the size of, like, a magazine. It's big. Right. So she purposely grabbed it. And again, if you're in yeah. any kind of, if you feel any kind of danger, I don't think you'd take the time to do that. I think there could be another scenario, though, where maybe someone pulled up that she didn't want to talk to. You know, maybe someone that she didn't want to be around, mm -hmm. but someone she knew. And, you know, there are several people that would probably fit into that, um, fit that criteria from what we've discovered through research. And um, so there may have been several people that could have come to the house where she's like, she sees the car pull up. She's like, okay, I don't want to be around this person. Let me turn the TV off. Let me grab my stuff. I'm going to walk out and then they'll have to leave because I'm leaving. Yeah. And it could have it, potentially that could be the scenario, you know, and then this person, then she gets outside, it escalates quickly. And then, you know, this person decides to kill her. Yeah. So I don't think we can rule that possibility out. No, it seems that the killer had to have been at that back door at some point in the seconds or yeah. minute before this attack started. Which, again, is just another indication that this wasn't a stranger because a stranger would not assume that she's going to use that door. So this had to be right. somebody that knew that that was the door she used to go in and out. And so that's someone who's familiar with her habits and the home. Yeah, I totally agree. 100%. There is not a lot of space where this attack took place. None. I would estimate two feet at the most, I think, between the car and the wall of the house. Does that sound yes. about right? And that's not yes. that much space to be swinging a, a knife around and fighting off an attacker. It's pretty confined. Yes, I agree completely. But for whatever reason, that's we know that that's where the attack took place. And then, so, something else about that, by the way, um, you know, her head, when she's found, her head is facing west towards the street. So that's likely the position she was in before being dragged to the back step which in turn means the attacker came from the east towards her, and that means the attacker came from the backyard side, not from the street side, which is just, an, right. again, just yet another indicator that this wasn't a stranger, because if a stranger is, say, crouching out by the street, then the attack would happen in the opposite direction, and Debbie's head would be laying to the east, like towards her backyard rather than towards the street, if that makes sense. That is an excellent observation. You know, and I actually hadn't thought of that until you just said it, um, but I, I think that's spot on. Yeah. I think, you know, sometimes in cases, there's just these these what are seemingly minor details that don't seem to mean much, but they can, mm -hmm. if you just, you know, dig into them just a little bit, you can you can drill out some uh, some meaning and something that is pertinent to the, to a particular case. It also could mean, you know, like she knew the person because they were face to face for maybe yeah. a second or two. Mm -hmm. And then she said, okay, I'm leaving now. You mm -hmm. know, I'm, I'm getting out of here. And that's when the attack happened. So that's a, I mean, that's a great yeah. observation. Yeah. It appears that the threat started in the backyard and she was headed towards the street um, or headed in that direction, I should say, because it really is the only way out of there. I mean, there is, we did find that there's a gate on that back fence, which is on the south side of the property, um, that goes into the alleyway. 
but again, it's pitch black over there, and you have to you'd have to know exactly where that gate is and how to open it. You know, it had a latch or whatever, and I don't know that it's the exact same gate, but there was a fence with a gate around that backyard back in 1975. But that's not the most logical route to escape from the backyard. No, it's not. And another thing is, if you're if if you're being attacked by someone you don't know. If you walk out that door and someone you don't and someone you don't know is there standing in front of you, your first instinct is not going to be to run into the dark backyard where you may or may not be able to get to the gate in time. Right. Your first instinct is going to be to seek out another human. You're going to run in the direction of where people are at, which is the street. Yeah. Now the killer, I guess, could have used that back gate maybe to enter the backyard. Or to exit yes. it, I suppose. But again, you have to know where that gate is. Um, and I don't know, like on the alley side, I think there was a little bit of light nowadays, but back then there probably wasn't any light back there. So again, if you're trying to use that gate, you're familiar with the yard already and you know where it is. It was a pretty barren looking alley when we were there. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was overgrown and basically dirt. It was dark even now. Yep, Exactly. You know, I gotta say, this week in Lubbock, I am so pleasantly surprised with how many people we've been able to track down. I know you can talk to this a lot, but I mean, in any case, you have to track down people, witnesses, people with connections to the victim, and so on and so forth, and you always get a percentage that are on board 100% to help you, but there's usually a pretty big percentage that are kind of like, eh, hesitant about it. And we didn't. We really haven't experienced that hardly at all. I mean, not a single person this week slammed the door in our face. In fact, I don't know how many offers of lunches and tea and everything we got, but we, I'm like really, really pleasantly happy about how many people we've been able to contact and talk to. Uh, it's it was it's been astonishing. I mean, I you know <laughs> we have quite literally knocked on strangers' doors to talk about a 46 year old murder case now. And they just welcomed us into their houses. We played with their dogs. I mean, yeah. they told us what they knew. We spent hours, mm-hmm. you know, quite literally spent hours in strangers' homes. You know, we yeah. have a list of people that we have to talk to or try to talk to to try to get this thing uh, nailed down and cover all, all our bases. And quite literally, you know, we have been able to interview a couple of dozen people at this point, which yeah. is just I can tell you, you know, from writing about murder cases for many, many years, that is unheard of. I mean, and so um, it gives me hope, you yeah, know, that for maybe, sure. maybe we can, maybe we're on the right track. Yeah, I think we've had at least a couple hundred uh, requests to join our Facebook group just this week from being in Lubbock, which is really encouraging, too. There's a lot of people who really want yeah. to help. It's astonishing to me how many people in Lubbock remember this case, you know, yeah. because it is a cold, it's, it is such an old case. It's nearly mm-hmm. half a century, but people really remember this case. And I mean, as soon as you say Deborah Sue, they know the Williamson. Yes. I mean, it's, and I'm not just talking about people who are connected to the case, who were interviewed as suspects or people of interest or just giving witness statements. You know, several people we talked to were simply witnesses to some aspect of the investigation or the events of the night. Mm-hmm. I'm not even talking about those people. I'm talking about just regular people in Lubbock. Uh, they remember Deborah Sue Williamson, and it has. I 
I, I guess the term is maybe it has scarred the psychology of the town. Like they, mm-hmm. um, it's the, it's the scary, you know, danger in the night, you know, a young woman walks outside and mm-hmm. is ruthlessly stabbed to death. I mean, so I guess they just never have forgotten about her. No, that, that kind of event sticks with you for sure. Um, okay. So where are we, where are we at? What do you think we need to do? Where do we need to go next? Well, we've got most of the interviews done that we need to do. We still got a few on that front. Mm-hmm. I think right now uh, we need to find a DNA lab, obviously. Yeah. Because yeah. We, we know that there's evidence in the case that has not been DNA tested. Yes. So we need to work on that front. I think we probably need to, to find a knife expert. And, I agree. You know, to, you know we... We, we have theories about how big we think the knife was, what kind of a knife it was, but we need to find somebody who knows more about this than we do. And, um, yeah. you know, I think probably we need to talk to maybe someone who could maybe create a profile for us or give us an idea of mm-hmm. the characteristics of the kind of person who could have committed this crime. Yeah. So that when we're looking at our potential suspect list at some point, you know, it can maybe provide a roadmap or guidance as to uh, uh, who would be a better suspect than someone else. Yeah. So, um, but that, I think if we could start hammering on a couple of yeah. those fronts, I think that would definitely propel our investigation forward. Yeah, I definitely think so, too. I actually started a, a rough list of kind of some of the important behavioral aspects of this crime or what I think they are. And then hopefully we can get in touch with an actual criminal profiler who we can talk through those points with and see what, what feedback they can give us. So that would great, give us yeah. some great direction, I think. Absolutely. Hopefully. Yeah. We, it would be good to, to just to give them the bare bone facts of the case and see mm-hmm. what conclusions they come to and then layer in after that, some of the things that we've discovered during the course of our investigation and hand that, hand that second ball off to the, to a profiler just to see what, you know, what conclusions they come to. Yeah, most definitely. All right. Well, we'll keep moving forward as we always do. Get ready. Join AMU's cold case team and follow me, Jen Buchholz, and George Jared on our investigation into who really killed Debbie Sue Williamson. If you'd like to be a part of our effort and follow along, please join our Facebook group titled Unsolved Murder of Deborah Sue Williamson. This podcast is brought to you by American Military University. Narrated and produced by Jen Buchholz with co-host and investigative journalist George Jared. Senior producers Leechen Kranick and Andy Crow with support from Lisa Tanis. Sound engineering and editing by Harvest Creative Services. Special thanks to the Casebreakers, an investigative partner of AMU. Subscribe to Break the Case on Spotify, Google, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts.